This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links, and for becoming patrons at patreon.com slash Show. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and this episode number 340, we're going to figure out how to get every last drop from our monsters as we talk about the book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing. And we're keeping it small and agile this time around. Just myself, Tracy, and Ismail Alvarez, the, the Tome Show social media manager, right? Uh, so welcome back, yes. Ish. Good to be back. Sweet. And in this episode, we're talking about The Monsters Know What They're Doing by Keith Amon. The idea started from his blog of the same name, wherein he would write up analysis and strategies of how to run various D&D monsters. The book collects and revises some of those and adds to the concept as well. It is highly acclaimed when it was released, and we finally decided it was time to take a closer look for ourselves. Uh, So before we dive further into this, I want to thank all of the listeners who support the show. Doing so is easy. You can go shopping at DMs Guild or Amazon, just like you normally would. Uh, But you get there through the links at thetomeshow.com, and we get a small percentage. Or you can support us directly through Patreon at patreon.com slash thetomeshow, just like Leonard Pelche, Jill Sanders, Doug Palmer, Merrick Blackman. You can give a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month. Uh, Occasionally we'll have some people that support us at that level. Um... Those people are fantastic supporters of the show, and I thank them all for doing so. Okay, so in the interest of disclosure, whenever we're doing reviews, I always like to do a little uh, disclosure um, to see who's working from review copies or not, just in case that matters to our listeners. And for once in this case, I am not... uh, I do not have anything to disclose. I not only purchased this book, I purchased it twice. I got the Kindle. I bought the Kindle version, and I bought the uh, Audible version, so I could listen to the audiobook version specifically for this review. Anybody get review copies that you need to disclose, or are we all working from purchase copies? No, I bought my EPUB off of uh, the Google Play Store. Yeah, and I, I bought an electronic book as well. Okay. Uh, so- I do have one disclosure, even though it's not book club, that I'd like to make. Yeah, And that's just because of time, and I think we'll talk about how much is in this book. Uh, I I will admit right up front, I did not read everything to every level of detail, uh, given the amount of time I had to read it. I hope that's okay just to say up front, just in case. And I think that's fair, so people can can know going into it what your experience was with the book. Uh, Absolutely. Um, There were certainly, like I listened to, since we've been stuck at home for the last few months, I have spent a, a lot of my – I've been trying to stay in shape and so I've been running uh, three times a week, uh, usually for an hour or so at a time. So I listen to a lot of the book that way um, and occasionally you know, your mind wanders and so I may have missed a few things here and there of course. Uh, and, and having an audio book, I don't have I, – I, you know, I can't jot down notes in the margins and that kind of stuff like I might otherwise do. But um, – but I did manage to get through all of it. I just finished it literally this morning. Um, I wrapped up the last. I, I got through the end credits of the of the book. So, um, so let's talk about what this book is exactly. Like Tracy described it a little bit in our intro that this that it started out as a blog and then at least according to our interview um, that we already did, but will come later in the episode. 
um, somebody approached the author um, to turn with with the idea of turning it into a book. Um, and so he, it was basically just sort of his blog was breaking down, like how do you tactically how do you run each monster and you know working his way through the monster manual and all that. And I'd like to actually give a take on what I think the book is. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how how other people will feel, but um, one of the things I think because I started with D and D with fourth edition, and one of the things that's always been sort of difficult is they kind of just throw you in and a lot and particularly with fifth edition a lot of it's been about story high level story and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but the idea of what exactly those stat blocks and what alignment and things like that should translate into to actually make a physics type world um is a part that's often missing and so really what my my take on what he was doing is saying what does it mean when you have intelligence? And I think older editions did this to some degree. Is like, you know, this is the baseline of intelligence for humans. So what does it mean in terms of how you think and what types of decisions you would make and things like that? And once you have that framework of what those various stats might translate into, how to then use that to think through what the different creatures uh in the monster manual would actually be like, given that we can't just all go to a zoo or something like that and, and observe them. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's in, like, on one hand, it is very much a tactics book. It's a, how do you play these creatures intelligently and, and effectively? But he frames it in such a way where he says, yes, but it's only a tactics book in as much as the, the creatures know what their strengths and weaknesses are. Right, and they they would behave according to their strengths and weaknesses. So it's in many ways it's really a role playing book. It's about analyzing the the mechanical elements of the stat block and figuring out the appropriate way to role play the creature in that regard. Right. Right. And I think, and I know I've been going back to fourth edition a lot lately in terms of thinking through things, but I think that was one of the things that people talked about that it felt like the mechanics were divorced from the real world reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could even say that if, if someone doesn't give an explanation of what all the ability scores and things like that mean to this level, then you would say the same thing. The monsters, they just kind of exist and there's no real idea of how they fit into a world. So, and this is what he talks about a lot is like, it leads to this whole idea that the monster runs in and goes stabby stabby and it doesn't matter if it's a goblin or a kobold or a dragon they're all just going to go stabby stabby all the time ish is your is your take on sort of the purpose of this book similar yeah um what struck me uh really uh strongly about this book was that uh it yes it's a tactics book but it tries to veer away from this kind of like um computer game style simulation of Dungeons and Dragons. When I say that, we've probably most of us who play D&D have grown up playing like, you know, those gold box games or, you know, some version of them, Neverwinter Nights and so on and so forth. And every monster you fight, every encounter is to the death. Uh, Everything is like you just kind of stand there and chop at each other until one side goes down. Um, And that's, I think we, I think a lot of us were trained to run encounters that way uh and it's it's um 
like uh, one of my old piano teachers told me, it, it's going to take you just as long to unlearn the wrong way as it is to relearn the, the right way. Uh, and so I think a lot of us, like I'll, I'll say this from myself, you know, I, I had internalized a lot of the lessons of this book, uh, you know, in the last, I don't know, five years, but we're talking like five out of 20, where the whole rest of the time I was just like, okay, everyone is on either side. Okay, now you guys, you know, hit each other until one, you know, one side or the other is done. Um, and it, it really kind of lays out a foundation for, no, it doesn't have to be that way, you know. And, and it helps too because the players will learn that they can run away if you show them that the enemies can run away because a lot of players are like, no, we have to fight this. We, we can't run away because right. that's just what you do. Uh, and that was a lot of what I saw laid out in this book. It's a really good guidebook for, no, you don't have to, you don't have to run it like a computer simulation. Mm -hmm. You can, you can let them kind of live and breathe. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the, the use case for this book is interesting as well. Like I feel like having sort of listened to and or read this book cover to cover, I've, reflected on some sort of generalized things. Like I've, I feel like I've learned some things. Um, and, and as, I, as people will hear me mention in the interview later, um, I feel like tactics, monster tactics is one of my weaknesses as a DM. Um, so that's where part of my interest in this came from. Um, but I, but I, so I feel like I've internalized some ideas, some themes along the way. But I don't think that's the primary intended use case for this book, right? I don't think that's how he envisions. And, and, and he more or less said as much in the interview, as I recall. Uh, Tracy, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But, but the vision is like, oh, I've got an encounter with kobolds. Let me go read coming up in the next session. Let me go up and read quickly on the kobold uh, you know, tactics or, or what have you. Uh, and, and I think that's the primary use case, right? Like, I, I paid a lot of attention to the, to the undead section because I currently am running Curse of Strahd and that seems really relevant to me, you know? Um, and, and I think that's good. Like, to, to specifically think, oh, well, here's what the vampire spawn tactics look like. I've got vampire spawn in my next session. Like, now I've got some ideas of, of how to run that. And they're fairly straightforward and not honestly that difficult to run, but it did change my thinking about their motivation and how that encounter should play out. Um, but I think there's also some, some larger themes that you might pick up along the route. Did, did you have similar experiences where you, you internalize some larger themes but recognize that that's not really what the book is intended to do? I mean, I certainly did. Um, just going through, um, it really was about like, you know, almost a playbook for each individual monster mm. type. And I can see that utility of going back. That's why I say I, I bought this as an EPUB. I want to buy it as a book because I'm going to like highlight parts. I'm going to you know throw paper clips in there because I'm going to be going back to it very, very often. I imagine. Uh, but yeah, just when it when it starts to change the way that you look at encounters, and it's very very helpful in that way. It starts to change just your whole attitude about encounters overall, which. Like you mentioned, I don't think that was the, the intention, but I think that it's a, a happy side effect for sure. Tracy, how does that match up to your experience with the book? I think that matches up pretty well. Um, I do remember at the very beginning, I think it's the introduction when he talks about how he approached the, um, 
the ability scores and stuff like that to try to to give it uh, a real world, like a not a real world, but the whatever the physics of that world is, sort mm-hmm. of thing. And so I, th- I don't know when he started the blog if he intended to give this overarching like how you might be able to bring that about. But I think over the course of doing it, that came through mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. So so yeah so let's let's talk about some of the the larger because because. I don't think most people would or necessarily even should just seek to read this book cover to cover, right? They should they should get this book and then pull up the pages they need for the upcoming session that they're running, I think. Um, and that's I think the smart like it it was a like the audiobook was 25 hours. That was that's a long audiobook, <laughs> you know. It was a it was a it's a significant like it's a textbook on running monsters. Um, mm-hmm. so so I don't think I would advise people to necessarily pick it up and run it sort of uh, or, or read it cover to cover. But I did think that I picked up some, some ideas and some thought processes along the way of doing that. So, so what sort of the bigger, what are some of the bigger themes that, that we all picked up as we read it through like this? Who wants to start? I'll start. Uh, so I, I didn't, as I mentioned, earlier i didn't get to read the whole book but i went through and kind of picked little segments of it with each creature type and so on uh that i thought would be interesting to me for instance minotaurs i've always loved and i wanted to see what insight he had on those mm-hmm. um and so i looked in there and um I, I read that in the null section and they were very similar in that he goes very hard into the specific um style that they're presented in the monster manual uh, and so he uh, kind of breaks down like, well, these are the different kind of gnolls that are in the monster manual. This is how you can use them in their own individual way and why their abilities are important and how they function in combat and so on. Um, so the same thing was with the Minotaur, although the Minotaur had a little bit more flavor to it and it had a little bit more like this is, you know, the origins of the Minotaur and like, well, See, minotaurs are nocturnal, so you're probably going to find them at night and so on and so forth. But um, it really um, kind of made you think of them. It, it, it almost reminded me of the old uh, Dungeon Magazine, or sorry, Dragon Magazine uh, monster ecology sections. Mm. But it was a little bit more intentional. It wasn't like this is like a national, it wasn't like a National Geographic kind of style presentation like the, the monster ecology section right. was. It was more like, well, think about it logically this is what you see in their stat blocks and this is what that means in the real world and when you when you think about it that way then it translated it translates into these monster actions and it translates into these monster strategies um and in that way kind of uh unbound me to think a little bit more like well you should i should be thinking of the, about these monsters more holistically uh and i should be considering that they're not just uh, you know, a monster that exists in a dungeon in a ten-foot square room for no reason—they—they—they—they they, 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 they uh, live out there in Faerun or you know, um, uh, Eberron or wherever, mm-hmm. and they have to fit into that context in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Tracy, did you have any sort of uh, overarching lessons or themes that you saw that you wanted to discuss? I don't know if it counts as an overarching one, but one of the big things is when I first started, uh, I wouldn't even call it doing design. I remember somebody told me that 
you're not supposed to change like the spell list of a monster or an NP uh, adversary in response to what the players are doing because that's not fair for some reason. And I liked the fact that this book challenges that <laughs> when it makes sense. Like you don't, you're not going to mm-hmm. suddenly make everything that way, but when it makes sense, you should have that reaction because it leads into the players impacting the world. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's not a native, like it's not a natural spell, right? If, if it's a creature that inherently has some sort of spell-like ability, that's one thing. But if it's the Archmage, like, why do they all have to have the same spell list? That's ridiculous. And mm-hmm. even and I would argue even Watsi and their design has challenged that in 5th edition because they've explicitly published, like, use the Archmage stat blocks, but change the spell lists, you know, in this way, you know, so... I think right, but it was even things like, you know, as the player characters are going through mm. encounters with the Archmage's underlings, right? Like, they're right. it's, it's going to learn what they use right. and mm. may end up deciding to challenge them in different ways. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that stuck out uh, as particularly poignant again for me because I'm running Curse of Strahd, right? And one of the things about Strahd is, like, he has spies everywhere. And, and he runs into the players a bunch and tests them and figures out who focuses on what and who, you know. So when, when, when um, Keith in this book talks about how if you have a really intelligent monster, you can simulate that by letting them sort of read the player's stats. Um, which on one hand, I could see some players crying foul <laughs> that, hey, the monster shouldn't know my wisdom score or whatever. Um but on the other hand, like the the right monsters kind of should, and Strahd definitely should, right? Because mm-hmm. Strahd just spent the last three weeks doing a crash course study on you, right? And, and he's real smart, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think he even um, in this book, Keith even mentioned um, the idea of like, or maybe it was just in our chat <laughs> during the interview. I'm trying, I don't remember exactly now, but the idea of like figure out what what the the creature's spells are going to be and like it's okay to just mark up in the stat block like oh no cast this in round one on such and such player cast you know like prep your your combat in that way like these are the spells and this is who they're supposed to target because that's who they're going to be most effective against um so i think that's that's a good point as well um and i don't think you have to have a, a an npc or a monster that that spends weeks studying the the players in order to be able to do some of that. Right. Uh, And I think that's to Tracy's point. Um, Spells were a big part of what I, what I thought about as I went through some of my overarching themes. Right. Um, Because spells are hard. It's one of the reasons I really liked running in fourth edition because it wasn't hard. Like everything had a little block that told you exactly what Mm -hmm. it did. And there was no just like, Oh yeah. And it has access to all these spells. Like if it had, if this, creature had access to fireball there was a little block of text that described what their fireball does right i didn't have to go hunting things down and looking things up um and 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 now we're back to here this creature has a as this spell list right um and that's the way it's been done for a long time and it, and it you know i get it but it's also that's the hard part to me that's the part that i mm-hmm. struggle with as a dm especially like i can figure out you know grapple before you attack or whatever right that's that's um that's usually easy enough to figure out, but spells are hard because then there's now I've got 
10 new abilities I got and I have to reference other pages and other books sometimes and figure all that stuff out and uh, it can be a mess um, but I think particularly that what the, the two things in terms of spells that stood out to me that I need to do better at um, is I need to do a better job of tracking the action economy like figure like the the idea that spiritual weapon is a bonus action like don't forget that in the middle of the combat every single creature that mm-hmm. can cast but can can cast spiritual weapon should be throwing out spiritual weapon because it's it's mm-hmm. a, it's a free action and then a free attack um I, I i think there was a lot more focus on defensive spells uh and using things to make the creature last longer um because one of my critiques i guess uh with this uh book was that like he will lay out like this is what creatures do on round one two three four and i'm like the odds that any of my creatures are going to last longer than two rounds is pretty slim like Mm -hmm. i don't don't need really complex thought processes and analyses on how to how to play this creature because they're not going to live that long anyway uh, but if I did, if I was smarter about some of those defensive things, maybe they would <laughs> get a couple more rounds out of it, right? <laughs> um, uh, and then, oh, the other th- spell thing that I realized, I don't think I've ever done in 5th edition, and it's stupid that I haven't, is is the one, the spells that can be upgraded by using a higher slot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, duh, of course they can, but I don't think it ever even occurred to me to do that with my monsters. Um, but that's, you know... It's such a no-brainer, but, like, yeah, I needed that to be pointed out to me, apparently, after all these years of playing 5th edition, because I never thought to do it. Um, and that's huge. Because then then it's not like, oh, well, here's a spell they have, it, 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 you know, here's their 4th-level spell slots. Well, there's nothing there that's particularly useful. I'll just skip 4th-level spell slots. I don't know. I'll just cast a 3rd-level spell. No big deal. Yeah, but then make it better, you know? <laughs> Why not? So, um mm-hmm. So that was huge for me too, and then and then I think some of the things that that you all talked about the idea of of because um, one of my concerns is if you make the the creatures more strategic, right? There was a lot of like goblins uh, hiding behind cover and being harder to hit and doing all that kind of stuff. Um, that's very tactically sound, but then part of me is like, yeah, but then that just drags out the fight too. Like, I don't want a, a relatively simple fight against goblins to last all night right um but then we also get run into well i think what you mentioned ish right but they're also gonna like they're they're really into self-preservation they're gonna surrender they're gonna run away they're gonna do other things because they want to survive more than they want to probably win this fight Mm -hmm. so so yeah there were some good sort of overarching themes here that i think were were interesting and useful to think about i do wonder too though if that's like an interesting kind of an interesting meta point about fifth edition and earlier editions because part of what you're talking about with this the spell slots like just use it at a uh use it as a higher level mm-hmm. and and increase it that has to do with the fact that there are spells that everyone can do they're not powers like in 4e uh where it just was what it was right, right. like i know they, they try to introduce ways of of increasing the power of them but and as a DM, how do you keep track of all of that? That's yeah. where you would have to do advanced prep and, and, and think through it on this level. And then the question is, what does that do to your game in terms of, do you just specialize on certain monsters? <laughs> so that way you just know right. it more? Because I don't have the ability to memorize uh, 
25 hours of content to not it's not a knock against it it's just no absolutely yeah no absolutely and i think that's i think that's fair i think i mean my go-to is going to be that i'm going to start using it i'll start looking through um to prep for like key encounters for each session let me just read the handful of pages that are particularly relevant to to what i think is going to be the the most uh exciting encounter in the upcoming session. So then I'm just reading a few pages a week and, and refreshing myself or whatever. I think that's p- part of what I do. Um, and, and, but then even then, like if there's a couple of mages or whatever, that's a lot of prep in terms of going through all the spells. I, I mentioned to a few people from this, reading this book, like I want to go through my monster manual and every time I see a spell list, put a little symbol next to every single thing that that can be cast as a reaction or as a bonus action, and then put a little symbol next to, you know, a little asterisk next to every single spell that can be upgraded with a higher slot, just to remind myself. And then I realized I haven't actually used my monster manual in over a year because I've been running all my monsters through D&D Beyond. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't mark up D&D Beyond, unfortunately. Um, that would be great, but that would be fairly difficult functionality, I think. Um, but I think you can at least hover over a spell in D&D Beyond that I'm hoping – I'm going to test it out this weekend, uh, actually tomorrow at my game, so I can test it out and see if I hover over it. Does it give me enough information real quick on the, on the fly to make a decision about what spells are useful and which ones uh, are not necessarily that, that useful in the situation? So we're going to see how, how that goes. But I think uh, Tracy's sort of questioning of this moves us into – an, in, an interesting sort of final question about the book. Uh, like, it gives a lot of advice and a lot of tactics, but what do we think of that advice? Like, is it generally sound? Do we have critiques? Are there areas where, where we might think differently than, than the author? Uh, where are we at with that? So, um, I've, you know, I, I've had... Uh, a bit of experience writing for third uh, party companies and what have you uh, doing monster design and as I do uh, every, every successive monster makes me appreciate the stat block all the more because I've always said the stat block tells its own story uh, previous versions of D&D and what have you would have these stat blocks that are like this long and then they would have like another little thing that would say these are the tactics and that was kind of handy it's not what is in this book that we're talking about Mm -hmm. um it was kind of helpful but not especially especially since it didn't really cover too many situations um but those were bloated and they felt kind of like too and i'm calling out third edition so you can (laughs) you can at me on twitter if you want but um the fifth edition stat block tells you what the monster does and how it does it um and i'm a little embarrassed to say that this the you know um the monsters know what they're doing this book uh did a much better job of kind of putting that out there than I ever could have as far as the, the idea of it but i've always thought like no you can see what the monster does you can see how they interact with each other you can see why um you know um hobgoblins work so much better as a group because they have something in their stat block that says that they do uh and goblins are so much better doing hit and runs because they have things in their stat blocks that say that they do uh and you know displacer beasts and the beholders and so on and so forth uh they were all created and and you know I, i hope that all the other monsters too were created very intentionally not just to not just to like make a monster that has the name of the thing that you want to fight, like uh, you know an owlbear, just so that you can you know check check a uh, box off. 
but that uh, they're made very intentionally to like do a thing that's very uh, specific. So when you fight a purple worm, uh, you know you're you know you're in for a fight, and you know that it's going to be this like big uh, drag out fight. And it's gonna and it's gonna swallow you with some yeah <laughs> exactly. Um, and when you fight uh, a beholder, you know that you're gonna have to like be dodging eye rays, and and you could be petrified or killed, and that you know all bets are off. Um, so this book, you know, the I, I didn't look again. I didn't look through everything, but what little I did, it seemed to really lay that out. These monsters are made to fight this way, uh, and they don't have to fight to the death. You can decide that you know. Depending on their ability scores, you can depend. You know, uh, figure that out depending on what uh, the you know um, description of them says. But they don't all have to be, you know, uh, just mannequins for you not to knock down. Uh, and I think that they it did a really good job of just expressing uh, in very good detail and and for virtually every monster in the monster manual just how you do that and exactly how you kind of make it go from the the page to the table. Mm-hmm. Tracy, what do you think of the the advice uh in general? I like it. Um and I like again I mean, I think you know that I do this a lot with uh all of my blog posts and stuff like that. It's about what do these mechanics imply about the world and and talk about with the world. Uh one of the things I do wonder though is if and how the assumptions might change between uh, planes in our versus in the multiverse, mm-hmm. you know, because what's true about the, the alignment in one area might not be true in another. And I know we talked about it a little bit with him, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and just, just thinking through that a little bit more might be interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's, um, it's a very, like he has, a method of analysis and it's very good at what it does. Right. Um, but there's also like, there's some consideration for alignment, but his consideration for alignment is basically that like, if it's evil, uh, it starts off as hostile. (laughs) If it's good, it starts off as friendly. Uh, you know, and if it's neutral, it, it starts off, you know, neutral. Um, and then there's some consideration of law versus chaos in terms of how they behave and what's important to the creatures and what have you. Um, but because of this very sort of mechanical approach, and I don't know that I got the impression that this is the way things are for Keith from the, from our interview with him. Um, I think he was a lot more fluid and, and narrative focused in, in his actual play. But the book kind of comes across as... Uh, dismissive almost of of certain abilities or certain parts of the mechanics because it's just not useful in um in combat right there's there's there was a, a moment or two where where he was describing one creature's abilities or once you know one of their spells or whatever and, and just said well this is just fluff this doesn't matter right now we're, it's not combat useful so move on it doesn't inform us of you know anything about what the creature would do and i'm like well I don't know if that's necessarily the case. In the same way that, like, I don't know that every creature that has dark vision, by definition, is also nocturnal, uh, you know. Uh, but he sometimes makes that that assumption. Uh, and there's good re- – like, and tactically and strategically, like, it makes sense. If you have dark vision, take advantage of that because not everything does, right? Um mm-hmm. 
but it, but it doesn't necessarily say it doesn't necessarily always say the same thing about every creature in every setting, right? Uh, and and I know um, in our conversation with him, Tracy, we asked him, you know, about the idea in Eberron, right? Uh, you know, does alignment function the same way in Eberron that it does in the core D and D setting? Because Eberron, you know, there is no no creature has sort of a set alignment, right? Uh, you're just as likely to run into um, a good red dragon as an evil red dragon in Eberron, uh, as I understand it, right? How does that change the the analysis of, of all of that? Um, and I don't know. Um, I, and honestly, I don't know that his system of analysis necessarily works in terms of accounting for that, um, at least that piece of it, right? I think the larger analysis right. still work. You know, the larger, like, this is the best tactics. This is, you know... What this, how this creature fights and whatever still works, but in terms of like, do they fight to the death? What, why do they start a fight? Eh, maybe it works and maybe it doesn't, and you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. So, uh, I think it does what it does really well, and it inspired me in a lot of ways. And there are some things where it's like, um, I, d- I don't know, maybe I can see where you're saying that, right? <laughs> you know, um, right. And th- and there were some moments where where he. It, it, and I, and I think he would be open to that because there were also moments in the in the book where he's like, you know, wizards did this with these creatures, and I don't really think that makes any sense. I would change the creatures. Like he was as critical sometimes of the books in the 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 monster manual statistics uh, mm-hmm. as I would might be of, of some of his approach to a few of those things, right? So, and I think he'd be yeah, open and- to that. Go ahead, Trace. And he and he and he wasn't sure. Just I know people listen to the the interview, but just uh, for for right now, you know, he wasn't sure about whether or not it would change things because he hadn't really thought through it yet, uh, and he's unsure if he's doing that. So right, exactly. it makes total sense. It was just one of those things that I, I just thought reading it like it it's nice to have the assumptions written down. It's like he does at the kind of at the beginning about how he's going to approach thinking about ability scores and alignment and stuff like that. Because if it turns out that you're in a world where those things are different, you probably want to check, double check the assumptions. I think that's fair. Any other sort of thoughts, uh, um, interesting sort of things that you feel like you learned, any particular advice that you liked or questioned, uh, who's got any last thoughts before we wrap things up or at least toss it to the interview? Yes. Um, yeah, just real quick. I mean, I picked, um, orcs and gnolls and minotaurs to kind of focus on in the reading, uh, among a few other things. Uh, but, um, I wanted to see how he was going to kind of approach the, you know, uh, are they evil? Like, you know, what, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what, what uh, place do they occupy in a campaign setting and, uh, and so on. And, um, I actually kind of like that he didn't. Uh, he didn't just say gnolls or you know blasphemous evil creatures and you know uh, all of them are just meant to be killed. There's a little bit in there of like no these things might fight to the death because that's kind of what they're you know raised to do works as well. But I mean that wasn't really kind of a judgment call. So I felt like it was a nice fair balanced way of showing off the creatures without making any kind of uh, judgment calls on like what kind of creatures they are or how they fit in culturally or what have you. And there were some moments where he did, like, there were some places where he absolutely t- talked about, like, 
these creatures are evil. These creatures are like embodiments of good. But when he did, like, one of the embodiments of good creatures was like, it's a unicorn, right? Mm -hmm. And and, and he goes on and on at one point about like, look, if your players are going to fight a unicorn, if they're going to go out and, and kill a unicorn, like throw the works at them like make them really regret the idea that they're trying to kill a unicorn because that's not okay like he seems to be really anti-killing unicorns you know uh, so um but yeah so uh but but yeah for the most part for at least for the like the intelligent humanoid races like devils might be seen as just pure evil celestials mm-hmm. you know are good right um but yeah. those are also like their role kind of in the in the cosmology of of creatures you know so um one thing that really stuck out to me and i don't know if it's just a me thing um so he did older versions of D and then dropped off for a while and then came back to help run a game for for his wife's for his wife using fifth edition and he does start using a language around and borrowing it probably pretty heavily from video games around what types of um, role or what roles different creatures fill according to their stat blocks. Like, are they the, the bruiser, the brute type thing and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And it just, I was like, I wanted, I kind of want to get him to read fourth edition (laughs) (laughs) because that was explicitly part of what, and I'm not saying you should, go back and do but it was interesting that he came back to trying to use those that language to talk through the the different creatures and and stuff like that no i i still um fourth edition playing fourth edition more than video gaming because i've never been a huge video gamer has um definitely changed my thinking and my language in terms of thinking about creature roles or or even pc roles and sometimes i try to like Oh well, this class is kind of a striker, kind of like it's it doesn't have as much role def- definition and protection as that did in fourth edition, um, so it gets outside of that a little bit. But you can kind of still see, oh well, you know, the warlock is the striker, the 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 rogue is the striker with their sneak attack damage, <laughs> and you know, um, right. And also, just like it might be useful to have that language again, and just not necessarily have the templates for what roles you have to fill in the, on the monster side to make a good balanced encounter. Mm-hmm. Well, and fourth edition was also really big into, into role protection. Like you have to have a certain number of each of these roles. And if you have different co- combinations, it changes the, the tactics and how things should work and uh, whether or not a party right. can function. And, and uh, I think it's okay to blur the lines of what fits into what role. Um, like we've right. done in fifth edition, but I think it's still useful language and still useful way of thinking mm-hmm. about things. Well, and and in in fourth edition for the on the DM side, they did have the charts of how many of each creature, uh, each each role you should have creature wise. Or mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And uh, I would say too, just especially as a dungeon master, um, you know, you can borrow that from fourth edition. Like fifth edition has borrowed so many. Uh, unique things that have only made it better. But, uh, you know, I think that's a really big point of this book is that you um, you don't live in this monster's skin every time you run a game. Uh, so this helps you do that. Uh, you know, if even if you have to boil da- them down to, like, a role or, like, a handful of abilities or, or a certain kind of behavior, um, like you were saying, um, 
about spiritual weapon, you it's funny, I didn't know that until I started running someone who was a cleric, and then they were all about it, did it every time. And it makes sense because it's part of their milieu. But, um, you know, unless you unless you take a crash course on every single class, you don't see those kind of similarities as you play the monsters. But this is a little bit more of a kind of a cheat book that lets you say, oh, okay, I got to do this with this. Okay, these monsters work that way. And even if you have to boil them down to, to roles, uh, that might be even more helpful because you've already got so many other things to to try and keep track of as a dungeon master. All right. I think that's our final thoughts. Yeah. Let's go chat with the author, Keith Amon, and see what he has to say about the book. So we are here now with Keith Amon, the author of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, both the blog and the book. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I think um, I, I've been sort of watching you on Twitter for a while. Your your book sort of blew up. Was it last fall? Uh, a lot of people sort of talking about it. When it was released, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of talk about it then, and, and I got it in my head. Hey, we should we should look at this a little closer and talk to this guy and figure out what all this is about, right? Uh, and, and it particularly um, was meaningful to me. I've been I've been – playing largely dming DD for a couple decades now like i started in in the early 80s uh i've considered myself to be pretty darn good at running the game but my real weakness is like monster strategy right so 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 what you're doing seems like a really good fit for what i need <laughs> so i was uh intrigued to take a look at this right um, so my understanding is that the book started as the blog. Correct. Uh, and, and sort of you were going through the blog and sort of detailing sort of monster by monster strategies uh, on how to, how to run these different creatures in 5th edition D&D. And then the book sort of compiles some of those strategies and revises them. Is that the, the gist? Yeah, the um, so I was I was approached by a publisher with uh, a, a suggestion that I should um, compile it into a book. Actually, I had been asked quite a few times uh, before then if I ever planned to turn the blog into a book, and every single time I said no. And it wasn't wasn't until I was approached that I really took that idea seriously. Um, but what I did is uh, I took all the information on the blog relating to creatures from the monster manual and uh, then filled it out with the ones from the monster manual that I had not looked at yet. And so made, made sort of a parallel volume to the monster manual, basically. And uh, in the process, my editor, who is also a 5th edition D&D player... Uh, and and a very sharp guy helped me um, find mistakes, you know, <laughs> work out work out some of the things that that had been a little rough the first time or unclear or uh, where I had actually just kind of gotten something wrong, and uh, we revised those parts. And um, my wife, who is a very talented artist, did the illustrations for me, and. Uh, yeah, and we produced what you hold in your hands. Jeff, we quickly talked about your experience with D&D, &D, but maybe it makes sense to go 
Keith, what is your experience with Dungeons and Dragons? My experience is uh, I date back to AD&D. And uh, that was the first edition I played. Uh, I had the Holmes Blue Box set. That was the first. That was the first D and D product I ever held in my hands. Um, but I I didn't really have a group of people to play with until mid to late high school. And the people I was playing with then were playing full on A D and D. So I jumped into the pool with both feet. And uh, went away to college, continued to play right about until the time second edition came out. And concurrent with that, I started drifting away from D&D and more into Shadowrun, which had just come out at that time. And uh, so when I returned to fantasy role-playing, at that time, the people I was playing with were no longer playing D&D. They were playing GURPS. So that was the system I played for a while. And I came back to Dungeons & Dragons with 5th edition. Uh, my wife asked me to DM a group for her and some of her coworkers. And uh, I went out and got the 5th edition starter set and... Uh, pretty quickly realized that the game had been overhauled in some pretty dramatic ways and so I got the player's handbook and the dungeon master's guide and then I really began to appreciate what the developers had done with D&D in the 5th edition and um and and it appeals to me a lot um I really like how streamlined uh, it has been relative to the previous editions that I played. I really like um, how very internally consistent it is and how systematic the developers have been in uh, how they write the rules. They take a very legalistic approach, which is the best possible approach for a game that has so many rules lawyers in it. And... Um, yeah, it's just I've I've just been continually impressed mm -hmm. by uh, how the uh, how the game is being managed right now and how it uh, how fifth edition built on the the foundation of the past editions of the game. Yeah, no, it feels like it it's it's sort of hit a sweet spot. You talk about this legalistic approach and and having played through, and I don't mean that as a pejorative at all. By the way, I, I to me that is a compliment that they have uh you know it's almost talmudic <laughs> um you know how they've how they've written it so that everything is to be interpreted absolutely literally that was a very smart move in in my opinion yeah and i think having having played my i started in in second edition ad and d um and it was a, a lot less so a lot more open to interpretation at that time Third edition mm -hmm. seemed to to ratchet up the no. We need to be clear because we've had decades, a decade or so now of people arguing over things. Um, mm -hmm. And then, to my mind, fourth edition cranked it up to eleven, which is what probably turned a lot of people off of fourth edition because it became so legalistic. It kind of lost the for some people. It kind of lost the story, right? It lost it lost huh. the the fantasy, uh, you know, world building and all that. Uh, so I think fifth edition has hit this this interesting sweet spot where things are evocative 
but mechanically it has enough of that legalese in it that it's very clear. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I thought, it, and that's why I wanted to bring up the experience that Keith has had because like I just, our listeners know I started with fourth edition, um, but my brother played those earlier editions and I sat in and listened to a lot of his games and there was a lot of arguing <laughs> to be honest <laughs> about what things meant or which things should be able to happen and stuff like that. So I remember a lot of that and I don't mean it in a bad way. They absolutely loved it. It was a great experience for them. Um, but reading the book, I was both um, brought back to that time in my life and then saying, thinking through with fourth and fifth edition, how it has changed um, and become like, I think you said a few times more streamlined in the book. And then I love the parts where you point out how sometimes uh they didn't necessarily pay quite as much attention to detail perhaps uh, in some of the, like the monsters, like the, the things that they're allowed to do don't actually fully match the flavor text, which is fine. It's not necessarily a huge knock. It's just, then you have to figure out what, what that means. Right. And, you know, to, uh, to, to build on what you just said, the fact that it was a, great experience for those players doesn't necessarily mean it was a great experience for everybody. There were, there were no doubt a lot of players who, uh, who, who had trouble with that style of play. And, um, fifth edition in, in is, is kind of simultaneously stricter, but also kinder. Um, it, it, it understands how many people are playing this game for the narrative experience and for the experience of of walking in someone else's shoes for a while, as well as the people who want a nice, structured, predictable, um, you know, way that that certain things are going to play out. Um, it's it's interesting to me how much more tightly rule governed combat is in 5th edition relative to the other two declared pillars of gameplay, social interaction and exploration. Uh, And uh, I'm sure that it's because they found out that that's where the most arguments break out. (laughs) You know, that that when people are in social interaction or uh, environmental exploration modes, they are much more comfortable with things being free form. Um, but when their hit points are on the line, they want everything just so. <laughs> yeah, I think like um, a story that hits on that, that I've heard a lot of people who've worked on D&D kind of throw about has to do go back to like playing quote unquote war in your neighborhood. You know, nobody cares. Everyone cared about whether or not you hit uh when you're shoot like playing with water guns or something like that whereas like how long it took to get up the hill people didn't really care about that as much or like whether or not you really had uh, a particular piece of flavor on you uh you know matches or something like that in pretend world uh so i think that adds to that right because like that's what people like i don't want my character to die that's the thing that i care most about having rules to protect me everything else we can negotiate out. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so Tracy had alluded earlier, uh, and I think it's interesting, this idea that sometimes you do this mecha- mechanical analysis of a creature and point out that what the mechanics suggest the creature should be doing is not what the flavor text 
describes as the way the char- the, the the creature works. And I think yeah, it's, it doesn't it's, happen a lot, but it does happen. Yeah, I think it's worth then asking. So, so what are sort of the the premises? What are the the foundational sort of assumptions that you make when you design these strategies? Where does that come from? The number one foundational assumption is that this is a the setting the game setting is a universe that is governed not by our natural laws of physics and biology and chemistry and so forth but by the rules of the game and there are creatures that live within this universe and they are living beings that seek to perpetuate their own existence and the existence of their species and that they have learned over generations instinctively the best ways to ensure their survival within that set of rules, within that universe. And so they are not going to use their particular adaptations, in other words, their features and traits and special actions in suboptimal ways. They are going to use them to their best effect. Now, that, that is, that's the general statement. There are some caveats to that, such as uh, a creature with very low intelligence is going to be less flexible, have less independent judgment, less ability to assess things outside its experience. And so if its normal way of acting, the way of acting that's optimal for 80% of the situations it encounters in its off-screen life stop working, it's not going to know what else to do. Uh, Whereas a very, very intelligent creature such as uh, a lich, a mind flayer, they're going to be very adaptive, very quick on the draw, uh, and have lots of different ideas about how to handle an unexpected situation. but uh, but in general, every creature is adapted to its own way of life and is the expert in using its own features and traits. Uh, and then every, everything else grows out of that. So so and that's where the the mechanical sort of features and traits and, and stat block and that kind of stuff takes precedence in some ways to your thinking over the, the flavor text. Right. Um, there are also uh, uh, a couple of things I do uh, with respect to ability scores. I use the ability scores as a way of deciding uh, what, a, what a creature's style is, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. I look for a main offensive ability and a main defensive ability. And so if those are, for example, strength and constitution, I conclude for that that this is a melee brawler. It's a tank that is going to go in, try to do as much damage as it can at close range, and it's going to be tough enough to to tank out the fight and keep fighting uh, until it wins most of the time. Um, my, my shorthand term for that is a brute. 
Anytime I refer to something as a brute, I'm talking about that ability contour with peaks in strength and constitution uh, for a creature that that favors melee engagement. But not every creature is like that. And so if you're not really thinking about what all your creatures are like and what their comparative advantages are, uh, you're going to end up with a lot of creatures that just run in and, and claw, claw, claw and stab, stab, stab and whatever. Um, until they die. And those kinds of fights are typical of a, uh, of a game in which the DM has not really thought a lot about how things are supposed to work um, or simply gets overwhelmed in the moment. And they get boring. They get samey. And, and creatures are not uh, differentiated from one another mm-hmm. adequately. Um, so, uh, I am very big into verisimilitude. Uh, that's sort of my own adaptation from playing with, uh, one friend in particular who has just a wildly creative imagination. Um, I don't have that kind of creativity that he has. Um, but I think I'm pretty good at making the situations I do create feel very real. And so that's, that's what I try to play too with these things um, and uh, really, really try to make every encounter feel like a, like a unique experience. Yeah. And you certainly have a, a, a style of play and an analysis that I think that I find interesting, right? Because um, there is a style of playing D and D wherein every fight is a fight to the, to the death. Right, but you you describe yeah. you describe very few such creatures uh, wherein every fight is a fight to the death. Most creatures have a threshold where it's like, okay, no, I'm out. You know, yeah, almost all creatures want to live. Um, the exceptions are undead and fanatics, basically. Um, undead fanatics and um, constructs. Creatures that are accustomed to a more uh, primitive, traditional kind of combat in which prisoners are not taken. Uh, prisoners are just executed. So being captured means dying. If, if you believe in your, in your heart of hearts that being captured means dying, then you are going to fight to the death. Um, but if... Uh, if, if you think you can live to fight another day, you're going to do that. And, uh, you know, if you look at the natural world, um, predators that, that go up against prey that fights back don't keep trying to bring down that prey. They get out of there and go after something easier. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think most creatures, given a choice, will fight to the death. Um, I think that they will fight until they recognize that they are bested and then they will get out of there by whatever means suits them the best. I think this brings up a question though in your games because some people end up playing with this belief that if you don't kill the creature you don't get the XP. Did you um did that come well, up I don't in do your that. games? I personally okay, yeah, no, I, yeah. 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 No, to to me um if you if you confront and win the encounter, you get the XP. Um, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you won it by killing the creature 
or simply by, you know, clearing the blockage. If, if, you're, if your only objective was to get through a certain area and the monster there was merely an obstacle to you getting through that area, if you can do what it takes to get through that area, you, you did it. You succeeded. Uh, there's no reason to penalize that by reducing XP. Um, now, if, if all you did was um, circumvent it in a way that left the problem for you or someone else to deal with later, then I usually give only half. Um, but as long as you actually achieved the greater objective of the encounter, yeah, I, I award full XP for that. Um, I, I, I personally have a mild moral problem with, um, with incentivizing killing everything you confront um, by only awarding XP for kills. I, that's not something I want to do. I definitely want my players to, um, to show mercy when they can, to uh, use clever solutions to circumvent a combat solution when that opportunity presents itself, and so forth. I definitely don't want to encourage the murder hobo mindset. Um, but, uh, but I also, I also want combat to feel like there are stakes. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I rail against the stereotype of the dungeon master as wanting to kill their players. I think if you are not fundamentally on your player's side, you should let someone else be the DM. Um, I am always rooting for my players, but at the same time, I want to give them challenges that are tough enough that they feel satisfied by the victory. Because nobody really likes a pushover victory. What they want is to be challenged uh, and then to prevail. And so the tougher the challenge, as long as they have that chance to prevail, the better, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I know. I know even if, and, and maybe you can speak to sort of how you imagine people using the book, right? But uh, to my mind, there's a few things going on. One, as, as sort of somebody who's reading it cover to cover, um, I, I, I absorb a way of thinking about running my encounters, right? And that's, I think, meaningful. Uh, but then I also think there's a, a useful, a use case for it of, okay, I'm about to run a session and I expect them to run into this monster. Let me see if it's in there and, and pick up some strategies, right? Um, and that's actually my primary intended use case because that's what I started writing the blog for. The blog was an echo of my own thoughts uh, when I was trying to prepare myself to do these things, to run these sessions. Um, and there were, there were two aspects to that. One is to make sure that I'm capturing the right flavor of the creature and using the creature in the most appropriate way. Um, the other is to reduce my decision-making during the game session itself. Because the more decisions you have to make under pressure when you're dividing your cognitive load 
among many different tasks as dungeon masters are always doing, the worst decisions you make. So the more decisions you can make beforehand, the more simple rules you can give yourself for evaluating a situation so that you can make a decision on the fly when you have to, the fewer of those decisions you have to make during the session itself. Uh, and so the lower your cognitive load and the, the more smoothly things are gonna go. Everyone wants their combat ideally to be high speed, low drag. Nobody likes analysis paralysis. And, and from, from other players, or themselves, or the DM, uh, and so when you can when you can kind of get into a zone and let things uh, progress smoothly with with uh, a minimum of dead air, uh, that's the ideal. No, absolutely, yeah, that, and that's always been my, you know, I, t I talked at the beginning about how I struggle as a DM to to run encounters effectively, and a lot of it is because my my sense of narrative and wanting things to just move quickly is greater than my sense of I want to, you know, run things optimally, right? Um, so, so I think it's good to, you know, part of me, after reading the book, I'm like, oh, now I need to prep for my next session. I wish there was like a worksheet or like, you know, create a, a uh, you know, uh, one of those uh, analog maps or whatever. Of, I, really, I really wanted to make flowcharts. Yeah. For I just never find the software to do it. And of course, obviously, it would not have fit in the book at all. But when, when I when I first started writing the blog, I really was like, man, I wish I could just put flowcharts with these things well, and and make it. Uh, but no, I, that that was a that was something that never came to fruition, unfortunately. I, I don't know if it is unfortunate because you know it might have it might not have turned into a book if I had done that. Yeah. So, well, it would work better in, in the, the book than it does in the audio book, which is how I've mostly consumed it. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah, that I imagine – well, because it's not searchable. So I can imagine right. that would be pretty tough. Although it's set up nicely. So they've, they've set up the chapters by creature. So if I want to listen to, oh, how do I run Vampire Spawn, I can just jump straight to that chapter, and, and listen, which I, I did. I, I re-listened to it um, last week before I ran my session because I was going to have uh, – uh, the players don't realize it, but their first encounter with Strahd okay. in disguise fighting some vampire spawn. And, and, and I got it myself into, into that headspace that, you know, from, from reading the book, um, I got myself into that headspace. Okay, okay, but what's the purpose here? Like they don't actually want to win. They're there to make this person look like they're be under threat, right? So now the players mm -hmm. feel for this person. They come to the rescue, but secretly it's Strahd in disguise, right? Uh, so, so that that whole encounter only needed to last a couple of a couple of rounds, just to to make the point. And then, oh no, we've been blasted! Run away! You know, whatever it is. So, uh, no, it, it was it was useful way of thinking about about that. So, we talked about sort of the the basic foundation premise of of your analysis, your strategizing, uh, and some of the other things. Have, there's other things that have sort of come out uh, as you've talked as well. And I think one of the things um, that hasn't come up as much is your – it seems like your sense of how combat is run is, is mostly assuming mapped out combat, 
right? Because you're, you're talking about they can move this distance and you're talking about flanking, using the optional flanking rules and that kind of stuff, uh, yeah. which assumes yeah. that you're not running theater of the mind. Is that accurate? Uh, it's, it's about 80% accurate. Um, I use, um, I use a battle map myself. I use gritted combat. Um, I do occasionally use, I I actually, for me, it is about 80, 20. It's, it's about 80% on the grid, 20% theater of the mind. I tend to use theater of the mind for, uh, combat encounters that are looser, that are less terrain dependent, um, that have uh, less of an impact on how things are going to play out beyond the end of that encounter. Um, there's really nothing in what I write that doesn't apply at all to theater of the mind, um, except that, of course, when you are playing theater of the mind, you're interpreting certain things more loosely, like like ranges. Um, the basic combat heuristics don't really change. Sure. You're just um, you're you're just a little bit looser about how you interpret them. And of course, flanking no longer comes into play because flanking the optional rule is only an option when you're playing gridded combat. It does not apply to theater of the mind. Um, so yeah, then you can't use that, but, um, generally speaking, um, it's, uh, it's, it's grid oriented, but it's not grid dependent. I think that's fair. Um, so you've got a lot of creatures in the book, but the monster manual is, is large and there's mm. other books as well full of monsters now is, uh, that, that didn't come out when the book uh, – when 5th edition originally came out. Uh, so how do right. you make the decision about what to include and what not to include in this book? Uh, well, the, like I said before, the, uh, the book, The Monsters Know What They're Doing, was um, – developed specifically to parallel the monster manual. So there is nothing in the book that is uh, in a book other than the monster manual. Right. There are no creatures from Volos or Mordenkainen's in the monsters know what they're doing, the book. Um, and I tried to be relatively complete uh, with respect to how many of the monsters uh, from the monster manual that I looked at, uh, there were some omissions. Uh, I didn't do just basic animals. Um, there were a couple of creatures like, uh, the troglodyte is, is one <laughs> that, uh, are so simplistic. They don't even bear mention. Um, there, there is, there is no, you can run a troglodyte completely on autopilot. You don't need me to tell you what to do. Um, there was I, I there was one little omission that I'm kind of kicking myself for after the fact, uh, and and I uh, on the blog I tied up that loose thread uh, in uh, NPC Tactics Scout and Spy. Uh, I wish I I wish I had realized that those two were missing from the book, and and included them. Um, but other than that, I tried I tried to be pretty thorough uh, in making sure that. 
all of the important monsters from the monster manual were included. And uh, on the blog, I um, I am this close to uh, finally wrapping up uh, my examination of creatures in Volos. And uh, then I'm going to do what I can to uh, wrap up Mordenkainen's and after that, uh, probably move on to Eberron. That's my current plan. Okay. Um, some people have asked me whether I'm going to look at uh, stuff from Tome of Beasts or from Individual Adventures. Um, and my answer to that is I, I want to try to get the core Watsi books that more people are going to have and and get those things done before I start going uh, off on off in other directions. Mm. Okay. So you just so you just mentioned uh, potentially doing Ebron have, and maybe this is a not a great question, but have you thought about how that world changes? Maybe the way that you look at stat, the ability scores and stuff like that at all. Uh, I haven't looked at that yet. Uh, okay. Yeah. You know, when I get to that, then I'll look and see whether any change to the approach is necessary. But I, I imagine that, on the whole, probably not a lot will change. I was just Technology oh, doesn't change evolution. It's just another thing that you evolve in response to. Right. And that's where I was wondering, like, just the fact particularly for humanoids, that magic is a little more commonplace with that. But, yeah, I'm curious. Well, and there's also the fact that Eberron is built around an assumption that alignment is not necessarily assigned by genetics, right? So so just because you're a chromatic dragon doesn't mean you're evil in Eberron like it does in the rest of D&Ds. So I suppose that might change the mindset of the creature as well. There were several creatures that you sort of discuss um, not often, but every now and then you'll have a creature where the alignment impacts the tactics, right? I I was just recently mm -hmm. going through the Celestial section, for example, and uh, Celestials, of course, are right. a lot more likely to pull their punches because they're not trying to kill people. That's not their motivation. Right. Yeah. Or or uh, if you look at a, uh, a lawful neutral monster, like um, I think... Uh, Myconids are lawful neutral. Uh, Modrons are lawful neutral. Um, they are not looking to. They're they're not looking to kill you. They're looking to quell a disturbance. And so, if they can quell a disturbance in a nonviolent way, they will do it. If violence is required, they will do it. Um, or a, a chaotic neutral character um, is not necessarily malicious, uh, it's just reckless. And so a chaotic neutral uh, monster like, uh, like a slod, um, a lot of the violence that it's going to do is collateral. It's not necessarily in inspired by hostility if you encounter it it might not be hostile at all just indifferent um but yeah once you get into a uh a setting in which um 
alignment is more variable, then you are going to have uh, a little more variability in those approaches. Um, but uh, now, again, I haven't I haven't looked at a lot of those stat blocks yet, so I don't know if uh, any of those stat blocks say something like any evil alignment or uh, any alignment tending lawful or or anything like that, or if they just say lawful neutral, neutral evil, what have you. Um, I would tend to follow what the stat block says, and if the setting says there are exceptions, then that's simply an an asterisk appended to everything, you know. And if if the baseline member of a species is neutral evil, then what I'm giving you is the baseline tactic, and it might it might vary by individual. Right. Absolutely. I think that's fair. Um, Tracy, do you have any other uh, thoughts? Or questions? I think that's it for now. Okay. Uh, then I, I need to go to the, the big takeaway for me is that my biggest failing as a DM running monsters is I'm not paying enough attention to spells and specifically which ones can be cast as a bonus action and which ones can be upgraded with to higher slots. So I need to go through my monster manual and just jot in little notes for every single spell uh, in every <laughs> stat block, I think, just to give me a quick shorthand. So so thank you for making me think of that. So. You, almost, you almost have to. Having a spell repertoire complicates a creature's tactics by an order of magnitude because then you're not just comparing a set of five or six features with one another. Now, on top of those five or six features, you've got three or five or 10 or 12 spells, and every spell has to be evaluated against every other spell. And uh, it really it, it really is a time suck. And I always kind of keep my teeth a little bit before before diving into any creature with a large spell repertoire. Um, but knowing which ones enhance a creature's action economy is very, very important because that is uh, bonus actions are gold. Um, in in a in a situation, in a rule set where, uh, everyone gets movement, everyone gets an action, but some creatures get bonus actions and others don't. That fact in and of itself makes bonus actions extremely valuable. And any time you can take one, you'd almost be crazy not to. Entire strategies are built around things that grant bonus actions or that impose certain conditions that confer advantage like restrained, prone, stunned, paralyzed is far and away the biggest one. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's one of the things um, that I think 4th edition made really easy because stat blocks, like there were no just list of spells. If a creature had spells, there was a little block that had the description of exactly what it did and what kind of action it was. It was really easy. Um, for all of its its you know flaws and strengths, that was one of the strengths I think uh, that made life easier. But every other edition does it like fifth edition, right? Here's the list of spells. Now it's like okay, but I don't 
have all those spells memorized. I've been playing a long time, but I don't have all those spells memorized. So um, I think it's it's uh, going to be crucial for me to figure out how to look at that more carefully uh, as I run my my games. So thank you for reminding me in my head that that's something I need to think more about. So um, then in that case, I think I just want to thank you for joining us. And I want to point people um, to where they can find you. So if they want to know more about what you're up to, where should they go? Uh, I am active on Twitter, uh, at Keith Amon. That's my only uh, social media account that I use. Um, the blog is themonstersknow.com. My personal website is spyandowl.com. Uh, that's one word solid, no hyphens. Um, I uh, will be coming out with another book, on July 7th called Live to Tell the Tale, Combat Tactics for Player Characters, uh, in which I uh, render my uh, uh, restitution to all the uh, players in the 5th edition D&D world <laughs> for uh, what I did to them and uh, give them the, uh, the tools to fight back against the smarter monsters. Uh, so that'll be out July 7th. And uh, yeah, that's it. Very good, yeah. Although there are a lot of, of places for min-maxers who are playing PCs to go out there and find optimization. I'm not worried about them. I appreciate you throwing them <laughs> yeah, a bone, but, but I'm not but worried actually, about them. Actually, <laughs> you know, I, I come out of the uh, – from, from, from the olden days where it was real men, real role players, loonies and munchkins. Um, I, I come out of real role player stock. And uh, for me, it's not about optimizing the PC. In fact, I, I kind of think that's a little bit gauche. Um, it's not about mechanical optimization. It's about optimizing the behavior given the character that you have created. Mm -hmm. So the character itself does not need to be optimized. But if you want to keep that character alive you have to candidly acknowledge what that character's strengths and weaknesses are and optimize your decision-making in order to use that character effectively. Uh, so Live to Tell the Tale is, is not a, uh, not a min-maxing guide. It's a guide to decision-making. Ah, that's, that's an interesting approach. There's a lot of people that min-max how to build a character, but you're talking about how to min-max playing the character, not building it. So, <laughs> sure, it, yeah. That's, that's one way to put it. it if I got it right, it's kind of like the same type of approach you took with taking the monsters stat block or you know the creature stat block and the abilities they have and extrapolating out the story from them. You're doing that now from the the player side. Yes, that is absolutely what it is. Absolutely great. I'm looking forward to, to reading that as well. So uh, good job. Keep up the great work and. Uh, you know, maybe someday we'll have you on and, and, and have you can hop on another advice episode where you can jump in and, and uh, we can all shout back and forth at the panelists and, and figure out figure some of these things out. All right, be happy to. All right, great. And that's the end of this episode. Thank you uh, to all our listeners for supporting us by shopping at Amazon and DMs Guild. The links at thetomeshow.com or who our patrons at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. We also want to thank our guests, Ismail and Keith. And Ismail, if people want to find you, you are King Lorethorn or Elven Wizard King on all the social medias, right? Correct. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you also are on the the Tome Show's Facebook page. Uh, Correct. So, or at least most of it. Every now and then, I'll post something, but most of that's you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. lion share. <laughs> and and if they want to find uh, your stuff on DMs Guild, you both under your name and under, from Fat Goblin Games. Yes. Correct. So Ismael Alvarez, uh, which is a little bit harder to spell, but Fat. Fat Goblin Games, which is a little easier. Uh, and anything they do with 5th edition, there's a pretty decent chance I had a hand in it. There you go. You think Ish- Ismail Alvarez is harder to spell than Lorathorn? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I plead the fifth. Okay, okay. All right. If people want to get a hold of us, you can email the Tome Show at gmail.com. You know, if you're trying to figure out how to spell Lorathorn or Ismail, uh, you can email me and I'll. I'll set you up with that you can find me on twitter i am at squatch s-q-u-a-c-h tracy is at sarah dark magic that's sarah with an h and then dark and then magic uh and you can tweet the show it is at the tome show uh and do that and ask us for our discord link and i can send you whatever the latest link is for our discord channel where we've had all kinds of uh conversations uh, as the days go by some days it's it's real quiet nobody says much and then other days are like today where uh, I take a few hours off and I log in and there's 50 plus messages, you know, so um, it's it's moving over there. And me dropping Hamilton references. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and that's episode 340, where we got so good at monster strategy, we can now kill 20th level characters with a pack of goblins. In this episode of... I'm on the wall.